You're listening to Decisive Point. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. I'm talking with Colonel Richard D. Butler today. His article, Introduction to the China Land Power Study Center, was published in the winter 2023-24 issue of Parameters. Butler is the director of the China Land Power Study Center in the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College. Welcome to Decisive Point, Colonel Butler. Thanks. It's great to be here. What is the purpose and mission of the China Land Power Study Center? Well, about two years ago, the director of the Strategic Studies Institute, the Army's think tank here at the War College, started looking at where we had holes in our research analysis and education swing, if you will. It was pretty easy to find that with the rise of China and looking at the importance of strategic land power in the Indo-Pacific was one of those gaps. We didn't really have a dynamic or an established China team. The Institute had been doing lots of China research and it hosts an annual PLA conference, but there wasn't the dedicated staff inside of the Institute. She made the decision that we needed to form a core team as a center and thus the China Land Power Studies Center. And it does a couple of interesting things. We have counterpart centers at all the other PME institutions, the other war colleges. We, by looking specifically at strategic land power, really fill a hole in the swing of what the other institutions do when they're looking at the air power side of what the PLA does or space and maritime strength and overall high-level jointness type stuff that the National Defense University's equivalent of our organization does. It's been about two years in the building where we've internally harvested billets and changed the position descriptions. I got asked to come in and be the first director, quite the honor and the privilege. Coming out of the Indo-Pacific after more than a decade, I really think I can add some direction and some impetus as we get going down the trend line of looking at what the rise of China and their army and other affiliated ground forces do in support of their joint force and their national government, which is unique because it's really the Chinese Communist Party. It's a very different type of organization than we think about in the democratic world. Tell us about the organization's capabilities and how it is set up. We're just completing our hiring actions and starting our research agenda. We opened in January, initial operating capacity. We began last summer with the arrival of myself and Mr. Josh Aristegui, who's the chair of China Studies. So he and I work hand in glove trying to figure out how to get the center moving and establish itself to support research analysis and education. The center itself, from manpower perspective, we have one research professor, Dr. Brian Carlson, who arrived in November. We also have two visiting professors, Dr. Sheena Greitens from the University of Texas and Dr. Shamit Ganguly out of the University of Indiana, both very well established and frankly are doing a Herculean lift, helping lift our research effort, add that initial energy. Very grateful to them for that. We're also hiring a second research professor. Dr. Carlson is our professor of Indo-Pacific studies. He does more of a regional type perspective. We're also hiring research professor of PLA studies, People Liberation Army, their military. We're also hiring two intelligence analysts to help us do in-language research. Interestingly enough, everyone we're hiring has Mandarin skills, and we're also going to maintain security clearances. With those hirings, we can work with people like our primary stakeholders, like U.S. Army, Indo-Pacific, and Headquarters Department of the Army, to be able to do research that's relevant all the way from the unclassified up into the classified domain. That also allows us to do things like support war games and such, which is also important to the force. Walk us through the center's research agenda and products. To begin with, if you can imagine, sort of, we're looking through a lens. We think there are three lenses we look through. 
the first one being the red lens the adversary lens what is the people's liberation army and its adjacent ground units whether it's the people's armed police or the mps or the airborne forces that work for the air force how do they work if you tie that to what they do with their joint force and how they integrate, because they've mirrored a fair amount of what we do with their own distinction of how joint forces work together and also how they support their interagency and how they do that both in competition and all the way through protracted war. So the spectrum of conflict, that's sort of the red lens. If we ask the right questions, how do they intend to fight and win if war happens and how do they support their institutions that implement the design of things like the One Belt, One Road Initiative, which they now call the Belt and Road Initiative, and the Global Security Initiative that plays into their overall design where they're trying to do a couple of things. One is they want to isolate the United States from its allies and partners for a couple of reasons. Number one is it makes the seizure of Taiwan easier. And that's one of the things they're building their army and their joint force for. It also allows them to continue to push against like Philippine sovereignty in the South China Sea, where the CCP continues to claim that that is their own internal sea. From a legal perspective, that's been refuted, but they generally are frankly not upholding the law. The other thing obviously they do is they go around the world and establish security locations and places like build it out of the Djibouti port and access in Gwadar and Pakistan and in Reem, Cambodia and places in Bangladesh. They're helping establish the security and the infrastructure that allows them to stay more resilient, as well as continually trying to flip the rules-based international order that we established at the end of World War II that lifted so many people out of poverty, hundreds of millions, and helped us win the Cold War against the Soviet Union. They're trying to change that and bend it to their will, and the military is helping to do those things. If you look at what we do, a shift from the red lens to the blue lens. We're trying to figure out from the military perspective, from the perspective of looking through the lens, starting with strategic land power. By that, I mean army, marines, and special operators on the ground, operating on land in human terrain, synchronizing all of the effects that the military can bring to buy, essentially in peacetime or competition, if you will, to buy the trade spaces required for economic actions and diplomatic actions to take hold that protect the free and open Indo-Pacific, or if you expand it, the free world. That's essentially what we're talking about. From there, we can see how we fit better into the joint force. We can see how the United States military works with the interagencies and partners in a better way in the 21st century going forward. And if you shift from the blue lens to the green lens, we can start having better discussions because we're doing active campaigning with military forces, exercises, exchanges, and other engagement activity that allow our partners and allied militaries understand how they better integrate with strategic land power that we bring forward. Then they figure out the same logic, how they fit within their joint service and how do they fit within their interagency to maintain their own vital interests, beginning with their own sovereignty. It's a real interesting challenge in the Indo-Pacific because it's not a series of contiguous countries like Europe, a lot of water, Humans live on land. That's where decisions are made. That's where vital interests are the most vital because we're talking about the sovereign terrain of a nation. We think there's a lot of goodness that comes out of having strategic land power forward doing things. For example, when we began a better relationship with India, that began in the late 1990s and it really opened up in the naval lane. There's reasons for that. Navies operate generally in common terrain, the sea. So it's easier to establish and begin military exercises when you're out of the gaze of your citizens and your population. That built a strong relationship. But over the years, and because of the slow changes and evolution of policy in India and the rise of the threat of China, 
and recognition that they needed to buy more Western-oriented military capabilities because they were, frankly, a better product and a better technology and better to maintain and easier to use as the entire package. The Army in the Indo-Pacific, USERPAC, has gained traction and began doing a little more work with the Indian Army. When you do things that are in other people's sovereign terrain, whether it be sending equipment or advisors or doing exercises, those all send a strategic signal about the interconnectedness of all the militaries, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, where the armies of the Indo-Pacific and the chiefs of army generally lead their militaries. They're an army-oriented culture for several reasons. Number one is generally the first thing you build is an army to protect your sovereign land terrain. That's generally been the culture. Those militaries Many of them are getting more high-tech and more sophisticated, and they're growing their navies, and they're growing their air forces. But the strategic culture is still oriented around the Army. We think that this is really critical work that we can do to help shape how land power is used, what it means to maintaining peace and stability in the region, setting the deterrence value that's required to keep that peace and stability, and also clearly sending the signal that the U.S., its allies, and its partners are prepared to tip into conflict if crisis arises and give pause to authoritarian states that wish to bend others to their will. You talked a little bit about the organization's setup. Is there anything else that you want to add to that? I think from the standpoint of generally research and analysis results and products, we attack this in a few different ways because unlike a lot of the rest of the U.S. Army War College where we fit We're an externally oriented organization with stakeholders and customers. We answer their research questions. We also identify gaps in some of their logic and thinking at the operational and strategic level so we can help them think better. We also acknowledge that what we want to do with a lot of what we want to pass is unclassified data because it's more readily accessible to all the customers that we service, as well as, frankly, folks in the rest of the executive branch of government, legislative branch, and the American people that need to understand that we have the American Army for a reason and it's critically important. We also intend to have a very active website. The website's up and running. We're still building pieces of it, but we want it to house that research. We also want to be able to show good work from other centers so that people can link from one to the other. We'd like to be active on social media so we can do some of that outreach and engagement that people really depend on now. Depending on what generation and how old you actually are depends on what app you go to. So we've got to be active in social media. Additionally, we want to be active with foreign counterparts people that look at the problems that we look at so we understand their perspectives and do collaborative research with them, whether it be in places like Japan or Korea or Taiwan or India. What would that look like? That's a great question. I think there's a couple ways we approach it. The first is we can participate in each other's professional conferences where we come together as a series of China watchers that talk about these problems and do the research. We'd also like to do collaborative research and release if we can. That way, you're showing a common perspective, which helps policymakers in both countries understand what actions might be worthwhile. We're revamping and updating the PLA conference, the Carlisle Conference and the PLA Conference, which really is our capstone event for the year. The next one's going to be held this October, designing that so that we look at what's actually important and draw everybody together. Which brings me to the idea, we talked about the lenses and some of the research questions that drive what these things do. How does the Chinese intend to fight? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for allies and partners? There's a series of questions that go along with that that we're anxious to research. But we also want to organize ourselves into annual themes so that the research goes together and feeds into the conference. When Josh and I got here and we started looking at the research agenda and where the gaps and the swings were, we liked the idea that the theme for our first year was going to be protracted war. That was for a couple of reasons. 
First is, with history as a reference, wars against peer rivals traditionally are not short and sharp. They're long and protracted. When they're short and sharp, it's because one side completely underestimates the other side. We think there's salient reasons why, based on the tyranny of distance and the type of force structure we're building and the way we think about war the last 20 years, not stability operations, but actual large-scale combat operations itself, we think that there's a cognitive disconnect between how we fought wars the last 20 years and what we need to be prepared to do against the rise of China. And frankly, collusion among other authoritarians with China. If you watch what's going on in Ukraine and North Korean and Chinese capabilities that are showing up in that battle space and Iranian capabilities as well, as an example. We think that protracted war allows us to understand the reality of a potential conflict. From there, we think it changes how you think about deterrence, because if you're only prepared to deter for a short war, that's a very different proposition than being prepared to deter a long war, which also signals, is the United States military ready for that type of war? Is it built for that type of war? Back in the adversary lens, how are they thinking about it? What should they be thinking about it? What are they actually preparing for? How are they preparing for it? What does that tell us? And what does that teach us? I think are critical. So very, very interested in going forward this year. I'm joking that we're about 50% strength, but we're trying to run at about 75% capacity because this is important work and we're anxious and eager to get after it. This has been a really good chat. Do you have any concluding thoughts you want to share? One of the themes I've been driving home is that we want to be an approachable center. That's why we've talked about open collaboration, why we're talking about an active website and social media. People that want to contribute to the conversation or help with making the research and analysis go forward, we want to hear from you. We want to be collaborative. Just a simple example, the other PME centers and the directors and some of the research folks all came here in early December. CMSI from Newport and Cassie from the Air War College and the Center for Chinese Studies from NDU and Phil Saunders and his team. Huge shout out to all the directors and the researchers because that collaboration, first of all, helped us get our hands more around how we need to set ourselves up. Secondly, they welcomed us into their established relationships with a very warm welcome and warm reception, and it was fantastic. Thirdly, we also realized that there's more collaboration we can do that supports both our charter, but more importantly, the whole of the U.S. military and the government and the people that our military are sworn to support. That type of collaboration needs to continue because this is a really complex problem and we're tipping into more dangerous times each and every year because the PLA is more and more capable and they're frankly rehearsing for what they might need to do against a place like Taiwan or a place like in the South China Seas or along the Indian border. And we need to be ready for it. And we're hoping that the hard work that our researchers will do in collaborations with others will help our stakeholders, the military, and the United States. Listeners, you can read the article at press.armywarcollege.edu slash parameters. Look for volume 53, issue four. It's always a pleasure talking with you, Colonel Butler. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Stephanie. It's great. For more Army War College podcasts on similar topics, check out Conversations on Strategy, SSI Live, and a better peace. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform. 